The Ruck is back for another year, but how much rugby will there be over the next few weeks and months is another question indeed. How many COVID cancellations do there need to be before Premiership Rugby decides on a possible circuit breaker? Should we shift the Six Nations? And is it time to admit that there's no way that the Lions Tour can go ahead as planned this summer? I'm Lawrence Delaglio and joining me today are Stephen Jones, Alex Lowe and Adam Hathaway. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Unfortunately, we, we're going to start with this coronavirus crisis and and really start with the with the, with the biggest story of, of the weekend, which is around the British and Irish Lions Tour. We understand a fi- an official decision is expected by the end of February, but can a Lions Tour realistically go ahead this year with little prospect of fans being able to travel? Jonesy, uh, I'm going to start with you because you look like you've been burning the midnight oil for the last four or five days on this particular subject. I mean, I guess for our listeners, it's pretty simple, isn't it? You either cancel the tour altogether, it's either postponed until possibly the autumn or or for another year until next year, which obviously causes complications with the World Cup, etc. Or that it's played, but not necessarily in South Africa, possibly played in, in the UK or or another destination if it's safe to do so. And I guess that's the that's probably the, the first message. It, we're, we're on about safety and security of everyone involved. But uh, what's your take on it? Because you've been talking to the uh, to various people across the weekend. Yeah, it would have been nice if uh, they did made that announcement about possible um, postponement, etc. Before we'd done five pages on it, uh, Lawrence, and then had to really go nuts and, uh, and and make some changes. But look, the the, the thing is, the, the the virus is 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 at a peak here and in South Africa. The the driving force behind the the, the Lions' announcement on Saturday was that promised vaccination program in South Africa has totally failed failed to begin. My opinion is that uh, you said uh, quite rightly that they, they, they're going to make a decision before February. I think it's going to be a lot sooner than that because I think now they are alive to the possibility of putting it back one year, which I think is easily the best. 35,000 people want to go. They deserve to have the chance. The players deserve to have the chance of being Lions in South Africa with the Lions. Then you have in play the possibility of putting the Six Nations back uh, this year until at such time as the fans can be there. Simple as that. I think the idea of playing it up here would have some merit if only we knew the fans could definitely come. The fans must be there, in in my opinion, and I'm happy that the Lions agreed with that. If it was to be delayed by 12 months, does that not cause complications with World Cup qualifications for 2023? And how do you think that sits with the with the clubs. Yeah, there's there are so many complexities in, involved in this decision and um what is a, a concern to those of us who believe in the Lions and love the Lions is that up until now the Lions voice and the global picture has been muted by the unions and by the club game and the Lions now really have to stand up for what they what they are and, and what they what they represent. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is why I agree with with Steve that the only option if they cannot play it this summer with fans, which to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no epidemiologist, but to me it seems impossible that, that can, they can be sure enough, early enough that that can happen. Because as you say, we've got a spike in cases in this country. I wrote last week that there were problems brewing because the cases in South Africa had rocketed past a million. There are no flights from South Africa to the UK at the moment. 
and the Foreign Office advise against travel to the country. So with that backdrop and the need to make a relatively early decision within the next few weeks, I don't see how it happens this summer. So, so then you're looking at the contingencies. And I'm with Jonesy. The only one that makes sense to me is to move it to, to next summer, 2022. This autumn theoretically works, but there's no way you'd get the Premiership clubs buying into a nine-week international window this autumn. Next summer, they would buy into it because they wouldn't have the issues of, of this summer. They can just they can flip it. But the issue the Lions will have, and this is where I'm really interested and where I come back to my point about the Lions' voice, is how they convince the unions, or perhaps mainly the RFU, that next summer is, is the right time to do it, rather than try and fudge a, a, a solution. Because I don't believe having it in this, in this country does the Lions any favours whatsoever. We all buy into the, the emotional value of what the Lions is, which is, which is a touring team that's thrown together and goes around the world and tries to beat the best in the world. Hosting it here might work once as an emergency, but you strip away so much of the, the the mystique and that mystique has not only emotional value but commercial value to the lions that i think it would be short-sighted to host it in the uk the problem with hosting it in south africa in 2022 is that eddie jones will hate the idea eddie jones will that's see not a problem that's a bonus for it it's a it's a but it's a problem in getting over the line and that's my point about Ben Calverley will have to negotiate with the RFU. And, and this is where it's about who's got the loudest voice because the Lions board has representatives from all the unions. Bill Sweeney is RFU chief executive. He's also on the Lions board. Where do his priorities lie? Are his priorities with Eddie Jones and what I suspect would be England's position, which is they don't want a Lions tour a year out from the World Cup because they'll, they'll supply half the squad and they will believe there's a, a fatigue factor, post-Lions fatigue factor. I'm not certain that that's the case. I think there are, I think Ireland, um, as was pointed out to me by someone within the Lions recently, Ireland played brilliantly after the last Lions tour. So it, it isn't necessarily a, a knock-on effect that if you go on a Lions tour, you then, you then play terribly. But Eddie Jones will not want that. If the Lions tour goes ahead, you know, summer of 2022, 20, uh, then... Clearly, all other international tours become somewhat of a development tour rather than uh, a full yes. international tour. And I think there has to be unilateral kind of agreement or unilateral kind of uh, rules and regulations around which players are then picked for those particular tours so that one nation doesn't get um, uh, a distinct advantage over another when it comes to uh, the World Cup the following year. Part of me thinks that, because obviously Eddie and I think all national coaches would be against having a Lions tour in 2022. Part of me just thinks, just give it to South Africa in 2025. And cancel it. Yeah. Sorry, look, the unions cannot have it both ways, Lawrence. They have shrunk the Lions tour down to a bare minimum. Don't tell us. I mean, a large number of people on the Lions tour, when you look at it, they are going to play probably, some are only going to start one or two games maximum. The idea that a, a mini Lions tour, and don't forget, it's not a year later. The Lions tour will be in July and the World Cup is not until September. So there's a 15 month gap. So the, the, this thing about the Lions tiring everybody out is a feeble excuse which past coaches have made for being a crap team. I mean, I, I understand the, the the various different positions of, of say, clubs, unions and the Lions themselves. But the, the one thing we, 
we, we've perhaps overlooked a little bit. We're looking at fixtures and schedules and, and, and opinion, but surely with the, with the financial pressures that are coming on the club game, um, there's talk about, uh, uh, you know, if this coronavirus carries on for, uh, for another few months, that, that one or two premiership rugby clubs will be under serious financial pressure and could even go out of business. Um, the RFU themselves... Uh, and all the other unions are under enormous financial pressure. They face the prospect of another round of international matches with no crowds, you know, albeit the Six Nations. Uh, and obviously we know how much of a cash cow the British and Irish Lions are. Is there not some sort of way of, of bringing everyone together? And I hate to use this word, but where financial necessity will drive the decision-making process rather than common sense necessarily. Well, of course it will, you know, welcome to the real world. I think Arthur touched on it in the paper last week, the possibility of playing the Six Nations this summer because they'll, they'll be desperate to get some crowds into that. Playing the Six Nations with, with no crowds is just anathema, to be honest. The unions be desperate to get some crowds. I think what Arthur wrote in the, in the paper last week about possibly playing the summer, that'd be eminently sensible. None of this is straightforward, but I, I would say all of it's doable. I, I think, Lawrence, your point about it being a financial decision, it, it inevitably will be. And I guess my my slight concern slash cynicism is that the unions have, as we said earlier, have paid of scant regard to, to the Lions f- for a long time until they suddenly get the chance to host some Lions test matches in the UK. And, uh, and I suspect they may well be driving that. Well, I don't know. I don't know, but I suspect they may will be driving that option, whereas rather than than the postponement option, because they'll it'll give them a chance for income that they hadn't foreseen and that they they obviously much need. Well, the other the other the other thing I think is that everyone talks about this word unprecedented times, and we are in an unprecedented situation, which let's be honest, uh, keeps changing every every day, every week, every month. You know, one country looks better placed with a vaccine and a, and a, and a you know, mass testing versus another country. And I, I just wouldn't rule out the possibility of a Lions tour going ahead, just not as we know it, that's all. Now, I know that that is not everyone's cup of tea. I know it's not a Lions tour, as we've all come to, to know and love it. But, uh, you know, I think we have to think outside the box in these unprecedented times. I, I just think we can't know early enough whether we can have full stadia in this country in the summer. So I think the starting point has to be you defer it to 2022. If we get down into into next year and we're in the same position, which we may well be because we, we can't foresee the future, then you're in. Then for me, it's a different conversation because then it comes down to thinking outside the box or cancellation. And suddenly, the idea of hosting these games somewhere else, whether it's the UK or Dubai or wherever, becomes more palatable when it's up against the option of cancellation. But for now, we're not that far down the road and postponement, as we've seen with European Championships and with the Olympics, is possible. You should remember that there there is another aspect here when we're talking about finance, and that is Lions Tours bail out the three hosted unions. They kept this, the, the Australian union from insolvency the last time they went there. Ditto uh, New Zealand, where they make hundreds of millions for the national economy. And if we're going to talk about, yes, as Lawrence says, it's going to be financial, yeah. But let's remember that South African rugby will be completely down the toilet if the Lions don't go. That, that is the influence of the Lions and the power that they have. Uh, so absolutely they, they, right, let's, try, they, let's try, stop 
making this let's not let people make excuses and Lawrence you made a good point this cannot be sorted by world rugby sitting there gobbing or the six nations sitting there gobbing it can only be sorted with the South Africans the six nations world rugby the the major club leagues the three club leagues all sitting around the same table the problem is Steve but all the same suits sit on all the different all the different committees yeah I know I know I know well that's, that's, that's what I'm saying shocking. what hat what hat is Bill Sweeney wearing in that meeting when he's there on behalf of World Rugby, the RFU and the Lions. Yeah, exactly. and he's not the only one. I'm not picking on him. It's three lunches. The only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the other thing that coronavirus is affecting, of course, is not just the British and Irish Lions tour, which is a massive decision, but it does have bigger implications closer to home. As we know, a number of fixtures, I think four fixtures have been cancelled in the last two rounds of premiership matches. A number of fixtures have been cancelled in the European Heineken Champions Cup as well. Um, and I want to ask the, uh, the, the the three of you. You know, do we think it's time for rugby to take a uh, a little break until COVID cases are are under control, or do you think that this point system that um, that both Premier Rugby have, um, have devised, which is um, the current system for giving uh, two points to the team adjudged to be at fault, uh, even though we're trying not to blame anyone for Corona, uh, and maybe four points for those who um, who, who aren't at fault, um, is a fair system? Because it would seem like the European uh, EPCR have come up with their with their own little uh, calculations of, of of giving five points to the um, to, to the team not at fault and, and no points for those who are, and it's causing a little bit of issue here. You know, have we got some? Uh, I mean, is it fair? Is it about the integrity of the competition? Are we way beyond that? And there is no integrity, and we've just got to be thankful that we've actually got sport on our on our TV screens and, and for people to actually watch. I've got to be honest, Lawrence. During the Autumn Nations Cup, uh, Fiji. Had three 28 nil defeats, and then um, during the Champions Cup, there was the the bonus try defeats. If you were deemed to be at fault, and I was staggered when the first round of um, Premiership matches were called off to find out that they're going to do this four and two situation because there's real scope for a bit of skullduggery there. If you if you don't fancy a game, there's clearly at the moment you've got teams who have, that, that have lost matches that have gained fewer points than than other teams who who have lost matches through Corona, and, and I mean uh, I think that's the that's the issue. And at this moment in time, it's it's not really a, a problem. But I, I mean I guess every every owner, every club have signed up to that particular agreement. But as the season progresses and as as the awarding of these points becomes much more emotive around uh, playoff places around. Uh, uh, European places, etc. Then I think it will start to become uh, much more of a talking point. And yeah. that brings me on to our next subject of, um, you know, whether the coronavirus will inevitably lead to ring fencing. What will happen to Saracens if the championship season can't go ahead? I, for one, am not against ring fencing one way or another at this particular moment in time. And I'll, and I'll put it out there. I'm, ordinarily, I would say, when you look at the league as it stands at the moment and you've got extra recently promoted fairly recently promoted team at the top Bristol recently promoted team in second Newcastle just promoted in third you would that that is a massive case to suggest that why the hell would you think about ring fence in the premiership but at this moment in time with a very stark reality that three or four of those clubs not those three or four but three or four may well go bust is there a need to ring fence the premiership certainly for a period of 12 months two years 
and then have a look at it again in, in two years' time. And my argument would be, if it saves the elite end of the game from going into complete meltdown, then I think it needs to be seriously considered. There are so many anomalies this year, people getting points for uh, for, for not, not, not turning up, really. But I have to say that I think that the clubs, all of them, have really made great efforts to get these games on. And I wouldn't like to see anyone relegated just because they happen to be in a difficult COVID area. I would say that, first of all, that I think they should consider probably having no relegation this year, but that will give them 13 clubs for next year because you can't suddenly say to Saracens uh, or indeed uh, Ealing and the other good teams uh, in the middle of the season, sorry, lads, there's no promotion because Saracens have set their team up, especially for one season. So I would think that uh, you've got to add the winning team to your plans, but probably for the sake of uh, fair play, not have relegation this year. There's no reason why you couldn't freeze things, ring fence and freeze things for a couple of years to allow these clubs, these wonderful clubs that Steve's talked about, to to recover really from from what has been um, to hell and back. We've been talking about this for so long, this idea of, of putting up the drawbridge or creating a, a structure where a club could only come up if if they prove they're financially um, and, uh, ready and, and have the facilities it feels like now is the moment when those who want that to happen should really instigate it because overall these owners and these clubs have, have invested so much into into elite rugby in England that for, for one of them to go to the wall to cease to exist be, because of the current situation would be would, would be desperate yeah true and, and it feels now that, that, that it has, for this year certainly it has to be the only option I saw arguments about well, if you don't have relegation, you can't crown a champion either. I, I disagree with that because at the top, there's a playoff system which was designed to smooth out some of the um, imbalances during a season in terms of England call-ups and such like. If there was a playoff down the bottom, you might have a different conversation, but there isn't. I would do away with relegation this season because you could easily have teams down the bottom through no fault of their own. The reason they brought in the new points system was because they, they recognised that you could have an outbreak at your club through no fault of your own. So it was a way of trying to limit the uh, the impact of it. Right, you're wrong, Nick, but that, that, that was the, the decision. And I, and I happen to agree with, with the sentiment behind it. But it means that the worst teams could escape relegation because they, they get four points for games that someone else called off. The flip side is also the case that a, a decent team could end up down the bottom. I would do away with relegation. The further complication is that we don't know for sure that the championship season will even happen. It's supposed to, to start in, in March, two conferences, but they don't yet have the funding through for for a testing program. They don't quite know how to access that yet. And, the, and obviously the, the situation on the ground is with COVID is changing all the time. So that season may not even happen, in which case you may have to manufacture Saracens returning to the premiership as one of the as one of the 13 members anyway. So certainly for this season and maybe for a couple of years, as you were saying, Lawrence, to just secure the investment and the owners and, and, and the loyalty they've shown to to, to elite rugby in England, it would just be desperate if one of them went went to the wall because of this, when something could be done to prevent it. The other interesting point I'd like to make on that is if you look at two of the t- clubs that we're going to get onto in a second, Bristol and Newcastle, the two most recently promoted clubs from the championship, there is an argument to suggest that if you relegate a side, and those two have both experienced that, that those clubs come back a lot better, rugby clubs, than they ever have been before. Um, they're able to reorganise themselves. They're able to rebuild in a winning culture. And Pat Lamb and Dean Richards have done an absolutely outstanding job. Dean Richards, not for the first time, because, of course, he's done it with Harlequins as well. And they come back a lot better 
rugby club, a lot better players and a lot better organisation than they were before. talk about some actual rugby that would be really quite nice because we're, we're we should probably crack on and Hathers if I start with you because yeah. um, looking and listening to you you look like the only one who's put some serious miles in this weekend and actually done <laughs> I, went to, I went to Bristol and Wasps long exactly well done well listen let's start with uh, let's start with that game down at Ashton Gate uh, you were one of the lucky ones that got to go there Bristol v Newcastle obviously the, the two most recently promoted sides. I mean, give us a, give us an overview of the game. It, of course, finished 29-17 to, to Bristol, who were uh, mounting a serious challenge to Exeter for, uh, uh, for the top four uh, and for, for titles. But a word on Newcastle as well, who, uh, under Dean Richards, I mean, you know, they, they've lost their unbeaten record, but they are by no means going to be uh, fighting down the bottom end of the table this season by the look of things. I thought that Newcastle were unlucky not to come away with anything from that game. They gave it a right old rattle against Bristol, who, I mean, Bristol aren't going away, but I don't think Newcastle are going away either. They're not going to be, um, I think, I spoke to Dean afterwards, and A, he said he was disappointed not to come away with at least a point. I reckon they could be challenging for top four. They go, right, they've got a decent coaching team there with Walder and Nick Easter's there now, obviously, um, this sort of uh, Dean Richards wannabe. But I think they'll have a proper crack. They'll be top, they'll be top, top six at least. I think it's important to mention as well to our listeners that the the incredible job that every club and, and Stephen Jones has mentioned it already, every club is doing just to just to get these fixtures on. I mean, yeah. Bristol were without six first choice front row players, so six first choice front row players. Fortunately, they weren't shorn of the uh, selection of uh, Carl Sinclair, who actually proved to be the difference in the sides. He, he came off the bench in the second half and absolutely decimated the New Zealand. But also, this that, that kid Klosker in the new and and you know, look, I, I love the uh, way that that both these directors of rugby, Pat Lamb and Dean Richards, are going about their business. You know, mixing seasoned internationals uh, in Bristol's case, one or two superstars with some of their academy players. Both understand the importance of that. George Klosker uh, for for Bristol, who's got a rich history of, of of his family being involved in Bristol Rugby Club, made his first Premiership start and was was outstanding man of the match 19 tackles scored a try so uh, you know Bristol almost had to change the way that they play to accommodate for uh, for their corona casualties but Lawrence terrific it, it was a terrific game for, 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 for a start and Newcastle looked potentially the best Newcastle team that I've seen and don't forget they were top four a couple of years ago and it is hateful that there are, there are no fans but the level of commitment that these guys with, as, as you say, six and seven people missing, the level of commitment and skill is massively to the credit of the clubs and the premiership. And uh, I, I, I think Newcastle probably need uh, a, a controller now. I think Toby Flood's probably just a little bit, not quite as quick as he was. I think they need a controller there. But you talk about George Klosker up front for a uh, young lad up front for Bristol. What about Jamie Blamire, who was, who was hooking for Newcastle, who looked like, like a real force of nature? I just think it was one of those games where the premiership, you think, blimey, 
this league under all the pressure, financial COVID, is a bloody good league. It was a tremendous game. I'm going to move on to the repeat of last year's or last season's Premiership final. Was against Exeter. Alex, uh, other than watching your beloved Kansas City Chiefs, I'm assuming you've had time now to catch up with uh, the proper sport, the real sport of rugby union. First of all, this... Of all the, the weekends in the NFL, this was the weekend I didn't need to watch Kansas City Chiefs because they'd already qualified in first place for the for the playoffs. They, 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 they filled they, their B team. Right. They are like the Exeter Chiefs, basically, <laughs> yeah. aren't they? Is that, that's what you're saying? <laughs> they filled their B team. Yeah, and I, I think the point on Joe Launchbury is the one that, that I'd focus on. He spoke to him last week uh, in the build-up to the game and, and he talked a few times about, about the pain of losing that final to Exeter and how it, he actually was relieved to go straight into into England camp, it, it hit him hard. If you if you remember, he was lying in uh, in the Washington goal area in heaving floods of tears after they lost that final. It meant everything to him. And I just think as a player, he has, this year, he's, he's taken his game to another level, which I, if I'm honest, I didn't know he had in him simply because he's one of those players who's just so consistently good all the time. His level rarely drops that I, I just thought we were seeing this is Joe Launchbury, this is the player. But he talked of, of the influence of Lee Blackett, the influence of Matt Proudfoot in particular with England and, and the focus on the physicality that, that he needs to bring. And he's a, he's a sort of a baby face. You know, he's got a baby face look. He's a gentle soul. He's, he's a lovely guy. And I think sometimes people look at him and, and don't see how big and strong and heavy he is. And, and he, he, he hasn't always had that mentality to impose himself like that. But that, that is now coming through in his game. And Lee, Lee Blackett was gushing about him, talked about how emotionally he gets talking about Joe Launchbury because of, of the player and the leader he is. And I just think he's been sensational for Wasps this year. And, you know, the heartbeat of everything that they're doing and, and, and the emotion of losing that final clearly came out for me uh, at the weekend. Let's move on to, I mean, well done, Wasps. And I'm sure Exeter will, will, will come back even stronger. So uh, let's, let's, that, that's just a minor blip. But let's, let's move down to, to King's home where Gloucester played sale. And and both of these sides were in desperate need of uh, of a win. Obviously, uh, you know, new coaching team under under Skivington and Alex King, the, the former Wasps, and, and Paul Deacon looking for his first victory as Sale, kind of a DOR head coach, whatever he wants to call himself, post Steve Diamond. I mean, it it wasn't a game without controversy. Let's be honest. There were some wonderful tries. You know, Reese Zamet scored a, a, an absolute cracker, and Sale kind of just you know through AJ McGinty sort of grounded out, and the game came to life in the last 10 minutes, really. Wonderful story. Josh Beaumont out for 15, 16 months with a horrific knee injury was the guy who who scored the winning try for Sale. But unfortunately, it wasn't him that got the headlines because uh, it was kind of slightly marred by uh, by an incident in uh, in the last couple of minutes, a, a Dan Dupree tackle, which somehow um, the, uh, the TMO decided was okay. I can't quite work out how that happened. And then uh, a rather off-the-pitch, unsavoury incident with, with the water boy and, uh, and, and Billy Twelvetrees. Who, um, who managed to have a little look at this? Great story as it was when Josh Bowman scored himself over the line by Dan Dupree, who shouldn't have been on the pitch at the time. Absolutely disgusting tackle. Not even a tackle. Complete um, head knocker. The problem is that they've allowed these things for too long. You're not supposed to go in on your own and smash people. And that, that was a particular, that, as Adam says, that was a particularly horrible one. Uh, and uh, contributed to the unbelievable fact that Gloucester are bottom of the table. Yeah. But, um, Lawrence, uh, let, let's just get one thing straight. The water boy, he's an official water boy wearing an official water boy shirt. 
I'm afraid I've got no sympathy for him whatsoever, because if you are anyone on the touchline in an official capacity, you know 100% you are not allowed to touch the ball, because if you touch the ball, the ball goes dead and it can't be a quick throw in. And the, the, the water boy was completely and utterly out of order as Billy Twelve Trees went to take a quick throw in. So the blame, in my opinion, was all one way. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with that. And I think what doesn't sit very comfortably with any of us, and, and I would imagine with anyone watching, is that the, uh, you know, Billy Twelve Trees obviously was an overreaction. You push someone over like that, the water boy, you're going to get yellow carded. Water boy blatantly knew exactly what he was doing, picked up the ball. Uh, he quite rightly got sent to the stands, but then the penalty was awarded to Sale. So the actions of the water boy effectively won Sale the game. And I think that is what doesn't sit very particularly well with me. And that's something that needs addressing. I'm also, without wishing to be someone who moans, because, you know, there's only one man who moans on this pod, and it's certainly not me. But uh, I think the actions of the water boys moving forward, Tony Spreadbury is very clear that the, 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 there is a number of of, of water boys permitted per side. I think it's five per team. And at the moment, we're, we're seeing a whole army of, of water boys running on the field. They're not water boys, they're coaches. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. They are not water boys. They're Alex Arneson wears a vest and, and runs on the pitch. So they are coaches giving instructions and players messages. Now, we had a, about six or seven per team running on in the Gloucester game. After 15 minutes, it was minus three. You surely don't need any water after 15 minutes. <laughs> In, in a temperature of minus three. And I just think that it needs policing. You know, there's technical areas in, in a number of sports, NFL, in football. And, and I think the water boys need policing, the, 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 um, the finishers, the substitutes, jump joining in celebrations in the in-goal area with, with teams that have scored. I think that needs policing because uh, there's going to be uh, full-scale brawls before we know it. And uh, it's going to be brought on by, uh, you know, by the fact that we're not regulating what's going on. So uh, I think that certainly needs addressing. Now, I want to move on to, to the final game of the weekend, which was, which was Leicester-Bath. And, and actually, whilst it, whilst it maybe didn't conjure memories of, of traditional Leicester-Bath games, it actually served us up a wonderful match. Jonesy, you've probably covered more Leicester-Bath derbies, more Leicester-Bath games than, than, than any journalist I know. It was a tremendous battle. It looked like two clubs who were normally used to being in the top four, Lawrence, and, and, and played as such. It, it, it was a tremendous battle. There was a mostly power, but a lot of skill there. I think we've seen a, a great new carrier in uh, in Jasper Visa, the, the number eight. I thought that uh, Leicester were convincingly uh, the more powerful and the, the better in contact. We saw an, a nice new fullback, great new fullback, possibly in Freddie Stewart of Leicester. We saw Leicester using the mighty Nadolo everywhere. Uh, we also saw, I think, two other things with in the defeated side. We saw in Zach Mercer, a guy, in, in my opinion, who was coming up the rankings at number eight. And we also saw, through the performance of Ben Spencer, the complete and arrant nonsense of Eddie Jones's selections at number nine, because Ben Spencer is a wonderful rugby player and he played really well and he's so much better than some of the people who went to the World Cup with England. Is It's not true. So it was a full-blooded thing and it looked like those two clubs are on their, are on their way back and it's credit to both. I was watching it early on and, and Anthony Watson couldn't couldn't take a high ball and I'm thinking, my God, how, all that talk of him as, a, as an England fullback and he can't catch one. And then uh, as, as the game went on and, and I think it was Austin 
was was highlighting the, the style of kicking that, that George Ford was doing and the spiral bomb that he was putting up. And it took me back to uh, I covered a Scotland tour in 04 when Mick Byrne, the great kicking coach, great all-black kicking coach, was, was on the Scotland staff. And he took us out onto the training field and gave us a, a demonstration of, of all the different types of, of kicks he was trying to coach the, the Scotland backs. And there was the spiral bomb. There was the floater, which which you, you kick it in the middle of the ball sort of with it parallel to the to the ground. And, and, and honestly, I would back myself as being able to catch a, catch a ball kicked in the air, obviously without a 20-stone forward herring down on me. And I couldn't get anywhere near them because they, they come down and about 10 yards above your head when you're under it, it whether it's a spiral bomb or the, or the floater, it just moves late in the air. And for all the talk we had of, in the autumn of too much kicking and everything, George Ford's execution of, of the kicking game was, was superb. And I thought the insight we got from, from, from Austin and, 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 and an understanding of really why it was so difficult for Anthony Watson under the high ball because of the, the different well, no style of kicks that, that, that he was putting you're, up. You're right, that, that, uh, that sort of screw kick or, or the one that, you know, because every fullback knows where to position themselves for a big up and under like that. But the, the nature of those kicks is you think you're in the right position and then suddenly it's like a dying duck. It, it just sort of falls about uh, two or three yeah. feet in front of you. And Johnny Wilkinson was an absolute master of that particular kick. The one thing that won't be happening this year in uh, in 2021, of course, is the Rugby Writers' Dinner. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by three of its um, former chairman of this wonderfully esteemed club, Hathers, the Pat Marshall Award for, uh, I guess, the person. I mean, it's it's kind of the real sports personality of the year award, isn't it? Yeah. In rugby? Some incredible nominations. The sadly, the dinner won't be taking place, but the the awards will stay, uh, still go ahead. And you're a sport for choice this year. Just give us a list of the uh, of the of the nominees. Well, I, I mean, the NHS is under pressure enough pressure as it is without us having a, another dinner. But <laughs> so the uh, the, the nom- nominees this year are. Uh, Rob Baxter, for obvious reasons. Nigel Owens, who refereed his 100th Test match. Dupont, the French scrum half, who was, um, made us all smile with the way he played rugby. Dan Leo, who's done terrific work standing up for the um, South Sea Islanders and a, a brilliant documentary as well, which you can see on Amazon. And um, Alan Wynne-Jones, who beat Richie McCall's record for the... Obviously, Arthur and I know who the winner is. If we told you, we'd have to kill it. We'll reveal the answer when, Hathers, in... Uh, in a couple of weeks. And just to put it into context, some of the uh, past winners, uh, Jonathan Davis, Dave Loveridge, some bloke called Delalio, Martin Johnson, Johnny Wilkinson, Brian O'Driscoll, Emily Scarrett. So it's quite an esteemed list. We are going to bring back uh, one of our regular features, which is Jones Moans. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of things he could moan about this week, but... Uh, Jonesy, what's what's really caught your eye? Well, what caught my eye was I made a point of uh, of, of studying the, uh, the the four Welsh regions who all played on Friday. Scarlets played the Dragons, and at Cardiff, Ospreys played uh, the Blues. Uh, it was just looking for signs of of revival, Lawrence, amongst the Welsh clubs who've been so bad for so long. Uh, and really, the moan is there were so few signs. I mean, Scarlets and Newport and uh, the Dragons are very, very poor game. Why is every Welsh game taking place in the dead of night rather than in 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 the uh, in the sunshine or at least uh, the light? We then went on to the game between the, the 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 Ospreys, who did show stuff, did play quite well, and Cardiff, who again were poor. And when you think that three of the four clubs don't appear to be making any progress. It really, really uh, does worry you. But possibly even more than that, you know, Welsh rugby in the eras of Bray Williams, John Dawes, these guys used to, used to 
lead the game in terms of the lead they gave in, in coaching. I mean, the Australians will tell you that it was a Welshman, Ray Williams, who set up all their coaching structures. Now you've got the four Welsh regions and none of them are coached by a Welshman. I mean, and, and, and probably none, no Welshman deserved to be a coach there. And, the, you know, the best team uh, there, the Ospreys, coached by Toby Booth, which was a great coach. But Wales have lost their lead on the field and off the field. And t- to me, that is a crying shame. And it's very, very worrying for the next five years. Well, there we have it. It's uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree with a lot of what you just said there, Jonesy. Um, we, we are going to move on to our our, our final uh, feature of the week, which is our God or Goddess of the week. And uh, whilst uh, Jonesy, you uh, you get your breath back, Alex, uh, we'll start with you. And it can't be um, it can't be Mahomes from the Kansas City Chiefs just yet. <laughs> you, you, you've got no, another. He had, he had a week off. He had a week off. You, you've got we'll, another. We'll save that for a few weeks' time when he wins the Super Bowl. Exactly. Um, so I would like to name check Gerwin Price, the former rugby player who won the World Darts title last night. I spoke to him a couple of years ago and he, he, a great guy told me a story of when, when his rugby career came to an end at Wales under 20, played for Cross Keys, almost took up a, an apprenticeship as a plumber. His mate started a, a pub darts team and that set him on the road to, to winning the world title last night. So uh, definitely name check for him. But we touched upon Rob Baxter winning an OBE in the New Year's Honours. And I'd like to award my God of the Week to Matt Hampson for the same reason. Long overdue recognition for a guy who, on a personal level, incredible character and courage just to cope with his own situation, never mind do everything he's done to help other sportsmen, other people in, in similar circumstances. So, yeah, my God of the Week goes to Matt Hampson. Adam, we uh, move on to yourself. God of Goddess of the Week, please. So we've, we've had nine months of um, government briefings, which tell us nothing. I just wish one bloke had been uh, given us a government briefing, and that's Pat Lamb. Last week, the uh, Harlequins game against Worcester got called off. Obviously, there, there might have been repercussions because Bristol had played them the week before. We had a, uh, one of these dreaded Zoom calls with Pat, and before we'd asked the question, he walked in, explained the whole situation with complete and utter clarity, he said, we had a positive test on Monday. I sent all the front rowers home, all six of them we played against Quinns. And basically, we didn't need to ask him another question. The guys had absolutely, it's just a straight talker. And all, you know, we're quite thick as journalists. All we need is someone to explain to us what's going on. And he does it brilliantly. And he's my God of the Week. Jonesy, just as a tribute to the Premiership and the way these young lads are coming through, I think George Kloster and Jamie Blamire are excellent. But I've got another one, and that's when uh, he came to this country to join your club at a huge, uh, a huge salary. Lima Sopoanga was seen as a usurper of Danny Cipriani. He was very unhappy and didn't play very often in his first season. Didn't appear to be that committed. But I have to say that my my god god of the week is Lima Sopoanga because he has changed things around. He is clearly committed. He's clearly playing a part as a leader. He's at fullback. He's kicking good goals. He's taking a part in the action. And he looks like he's enjoying himself. So for having the humility to cop the bad times and for bouncing back, my God of the Week is Lima Sopoanga. Well, it's very good of you to say that, Jonesy. I mean, I, I think he's played magnificently well. I would be, If I was training with him now as a professional player, I would be... Um... Helping him to, you know, to learn how to tackle, though, because uh, what I would say to him is, is that tackling is uh, 
is not optional. Uh, and he'd certainly be in Sean Edwards' remedial tackling group for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday until he learnt to actually lay a finger on someone at fullback. But I do hear what you're saying. He did, he did play a lot better and uh, great to see him particularly uh, prominent in uh, in attack. And finally, I, I was going to go with Matt Hampton. I probably still would, actually. But uh, equally, just to, to add to... Uh, to the list of, of 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 welcome and maybe you know someone some might say slightly controversial but in my mind very deserving was was the award of an MBE to Damien Hopley. Uh, the Rugby Players Association is the of course the the union that represents the players and and it's much maligned occasionally people knock it but uh, let me tell you this as someone who has um, who's been on the receiving end of uh, of a little bit of uh, uh, unfair treatment in my time. I think the the collective voice of the professional rugby players, it's been going for over 25 years now, represents 800 male and female rugby players. And when you need things like legal advice, personal professional development, insurance, education, you know, counselling, etc., the RPA has been there and will continue to be there. So I think for, for, for his service over 25 years, uh, I think that was long overdue. So he is my God of the week. Well done to Damien. Gentlemen, my thanks to um, Hathers, to Stephen Jones, to Alex Lowe. Whatever happens over the next seven days, The Ruck will be back next Monday. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. You can, of course, subscribe on Acast, iTunes and your usual podcast provider. Until next week. Until next week.